God bless you all. If we can find our seats, we're going to get started here this evening. I love, again, I love to hear the sheep. What's wrong? Oh, lot, yeah, it's time. We're like, she's like, open the word, let's go. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. No, I know, it's just teasing. Um, it is really great to be with you all this evening. Uh, just a couple updates. Um, again, as Press was saying, if you, if you have a cell phone, we encourage you to kind of silence the cell phone or throw it out, uh, whatever you prefer tonight. Uh, we're, we're, we're absolutely okay with that. I think it was a couple of months ago, or I don't remember, it was a year ago. My phone, of course, I say that. What's it do? It goes off in the middle of service. So I took it and chucked it to the side because I said, of course, that's going to happen to me. So, um, so you're in good company if that happens. But uh, silence your cell phones. The other thing is continue to be praying for uh, the land and the building. We were there today. Uh, the rig came. So today was drilling day. So they came and they got there about 1.30. Uh, and praise God, he kept off the storms until uh, we got 80 foot and they got the casing in. So as you've done it well, you know what they do first. They dig down and then they put the casing. Tomorrow they'll be back 7.30 bright and early to start um, drilling, you know, a few hundred to 500, whatever it is, feet down to we hit water. We hit 30 feet. First of all, we hit uh, stone, limestone at 12 feet. Not so surprising where we are. There's a quarry across the way. We kind of figured we were going to hit that, right? That's sort of a given. 30 feet, we hit water. We started having water kind of gush out, and I, uh, it was so cool because I got there a little early, and I was praying, um, and I was in the Word, and it had given me Isaiah 44, and I was reading that and it's a blessing it's talking about the water and I just started thinking how cool would that be to just see like a geyser you know the Bromleys our neighbors obviously the Bromleys came over and they prayed with us and we got to pray with the two men and then afterwards the one gentleman came over he just he's from Texas he just moved here about a month and a half ago um and he, you know, he hasn't fellowshiped here yet. He's been sort of on his own. He's, his wife is back there. She's coming, but they're trying to find a place to, to live and all that. And we had an awesome opportunity to talk about Jesus and how God is just so good. And, you know, when we hit water at 30 feet, just we hadn't even drilled yet. We're just doing the 10-inch line. He just was like, yep, God's in this. You know, we just got talking, and it was just cool. And just to see the Lord just, you know, put a smile on his face. Please pray for those guys. The other guy's name is Josh, Joshua. Um, not a surprise there either. Um, but just uh, just pray for those guys. That's a hard, hard job. And uh, they really worked hard today to do it before the storm came. And um, and we literally, we finished. We got, I got on my Jeep. They uh, We started heading out. I got to uh, the main road. And then I saw a couple droplets of rain. And I was like, thank you, Jesus. So... Please also pray, because on the 23rd, we have the Board of Supervisors meeting at 6.30 p.m. This is the big one. This is the one where they, they said, okay, pause, we'll come back, we'll reconvene in the, this month. So it's, what, a couple month, a couple weeks, excuse me, now. So please, please be praying uh, fast, if you will, uh, that the Lord will give us favor, the conditions will be good, and um, we'll be approved to start the building process. So I'm excited. So I just, please, please, please be praying for that. Well, thanks for uh, listening to those announcements and just I, I so encourage what God's doing. Will you please open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 23? 2 Samuel chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. And one of the ushers or elders or even pastors will bring you a Bible, please. Raise your hand. Don't be shy if you don't have a Bible, if anyone's in need. Some of you may have a sort of title or a subscript, if I can say it that way, at the heading of chapter 23 in some of your Bibles. 
and you'll read David's last words. And then you'll go to 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2, and you'll go, wait a minute. How could this be David's last words? Please remember, those are man-written. They came roughly around somewhere around 800 to 900 AD. Before that, we didn't have any titles above chapters. No such thing. We didn't even have vowels in the Hebrew, really, into the 400s. There was no Hebrew vowels. So um, what is inspired by God are the individual verses, obviously not the headings, if I can say it that way. But certainly, I wouldn't say this is, this is long or wrong, excuse me. What they're trying to say, or the, the scholars that had written this, is that these are truly the last inspired or prophetic words from David that we're going to see on the page. Um, after this point, we'll see him more or less um, you know, recounting our, our conversations. But we're going to be in chapter 23 and 24, really coming to a close sort of on David's life and the work that he's done, his heart. And uh, it's kind of interesting how he finishes uh, chapter 24. Uh, yeah, you know, one more, okay, Lord, what's going on here, you know, with David um, after a man after his own heart. But um, he decides to do a military census, and clearly that's sinful because he's trusting in himself. But in chapter 23, I think it's beautiful how David begins to express himself as he worships and he looks back and thinks upon his life. And he thinks upon the work God has done in his life and all the things that he's been through, the character uh, that he's produced in David, you know, a godly character. And just pay attention, if you will, in your notes here, if you're taking notes, the specific ways that David uses to not only define himself. I mean, he's not talking about this great king. Please pay really, really strong attention. A psalmist of Israel. When David thinks of himself and the way he defines himself, a worshiper of God. That's what a psalmist is, a worshiper of God. Again, not King David, not the shepherd boy, but a worshiper of God. Father, we just thank you for your holy word here. God, we pray you'll open it right into our hearts and that it would clearly leap off the page and you'd anoint it and settle in our hearts this evening, God, as we look upon the words of this, this man, Lord, that you have done so, so much work in, Lord, over all those years. And, and Lord, while not perfect, certainly a man that is desiring relationship. Lord, I think every one of us in this room here this evening and in the cars driving and those watching online, Lord, every one of us can relate to David. He truly is a man after your own heart, Lord. He's a reminder that uh, forgiven sinners go to heaven not good people. So Jesus, thank you for continuing to keep this intact, this account, and uh, keeping it holy and preserved for us that we may read these things um, and be set free by your love and your grace, not to be ensnared by the lies and condemnations of the devil. Thank you, God, for this holy word here this evening, and we, we just bless you, Lord. We praise you. May we be like David, the psalmist. May we be worshipers of you, God, and you alone. We pray and we ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. Amen. All right, chapter 23, verse 1. Now, these are the last words of David. You know, again, all due to God, his living in God that way. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God, please notice that definite article, the God, the one and only true God of Jacob, 
and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Isn't that beautiful when you just look at even those first, you know, the son of Jesse, you know, not a man that was a king of kings and he, he certainly inherited the title that way. No, just a very simple man. This man, Jesse, that's my dad, you know, the way he refers to him. A man that was raised up on high. Certainly nothing David did to describe or earn that. David's humility here speaking to the fact that God has done that. And then I love how he said the anointed of the God. Knowing that it wasn't something he possessed. It wasn't his giftings. It wasn't how great he was or eloquent. It wasn't because he had just a wonderful personality that everybody was drawn to. Or even somehow a character leader or any of those things that all of the world and the flesh and everything wants to pay attention to. No, no, no. He recognizes that the only reason was because he was anointed by God. He was anointed by God. And not just any God, but the God of Israel, the one true God. And then the way he refers to himself is beautiful. The psalmist of Israel, the worshiper of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. I, I think of that being the rock, you know. When they would read this together, recount this 3,000 years ago, you know, that idea of the rock. You know, I think of when they crossed over the Jordan, they, they mounted the rocks on both sides that way in the Jordan, obviously, and then on the other side in the Jordan. And it was just a reminder as Joshua, for example, was going on in the battle that God was with him as he would go and come back that way. You know, these memorial stones. But that's not what this is talking about. In your Bibles, it's got a capital R, I think, in most of your translations. You know this is Jesus. And it's a, it's a beautiful, if you turn, hold, hold your finger, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you were with us when we went through the book of Corinthians together, you, you, you know the passage I'm speaking of already, but it's, it's good to go back and look at it. It's just so wonderful to think of these Old Testament examples. That's why don't let anybody ever tell you we don't need to study the Old Testament or the Word of God. I, I've heard men out there you know, well, we just need to study the New Testament. We just need to focus on just the things of Jesus. The whole Bible is the counsel of God. And all of it speaks of Jesus Christ. All of it speaks of God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And these things are examples. And, and we're exhorted in the New Testament in First Corinthians chapter 10. Just looking with me at even verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, right? He's talking about Exodus 13, 21, Psalm 105, 38, when he speaks of the cloud that way, the presence with God, right? All passed through the sea, obviously Exodus 14, 21, talking about the Red Sea there, Salt Sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate of the same spiritual food. You might remember that, the manna. They called it, you know, what is it, right, in the Hebrew, Exodus 16, 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You see, God's presence and his going forth had always been laid out before Israel, before their pe God's chosen people. Many times they might not even have acknowledged it, which is why Moses never inherited 
uh, the ability to go into the promised land or was not given the ability to go into the promised land that way because you remember he struck the rock twice. And in so what was Moses doing as a leader? If you want to call him Pastor Moses, if you prefer, at that time a church of two million, roughly we believe Israel would have been. What did he do? What was his sin that was so grave that would keep him from entering into the promised land? And it's something so simple. He misrepresented God. He misrepresented God. He struck the rock twice. And that rock was to always be what? Symbol or as we read here, that rock was Christ. That living water that would flow from that rock. When Jesus Christ himself came, he says, I am the living water. So when we read here, the rock of Israel spoke to me. I do believe David knows this is Jesus. He understands what he's saying here. That God spoke with him. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Two things he points out to leaders. If you're going to be leaders, we need godly leaders. Uh, men today, please pay attention. As we need godly leaders. Two things he lists as a criteria. The very first one is what? One who rules over men must be just. And that's a beautiful word. Just, righteous, true, holy, not self-seeking, not self-motivating, not, not caring after themselves, but, but truly standing in the gap with the Lord and putting others first before themselves. Always standing on the site or the side of righteousness, right living, just. One who doesn't compromise, one who's not a respecter of persons, but one who with integrity approaches every situation justly. The second thing, ruling in the fear of God. This isn't a Nicolaitan, as we read in our New Testament, one who lords over the people and domineers them and says, you will do it this way. No, God's not looking for that. God is looking for someone that will rule in the fear of God, that they will be so conscious of God's heart and spirit that they will make sure that they will never desire to step out of the will of God. They will never desire to misrepresent God. They will be so cautious. Lord, is this your will? Is this what you want me to do? It's not that they lack confidence, but they trust God more than they trust themselves. And that you know, produces in them a reverential fear. We know in the Proverbs and the Psalm, fear what? It's the beginning of? That's right. Wisdom, sound, wisdom, even righteousness. It's also, when you look up, uh, I think it's Proverbs 8, if I'm not mistaken, 13, somewhere in there. When you look up and it says, what is the fear of God? It's to hate evil, right? Pride, right? Wickedness. So this is a man that's humble. This is a man that's not self-seeking. Look at how much is built up in just two sentences, two, you know, a single verse with an A and a B. Who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. David recognized this. This is what it looks like to be a godly leader. You know, I think obviously not all of you are going to be in full-time ministry, although you are all full-time ministers. The reality is, men and women, God has placed you 
He's placed you right where you are at your workplaces and your homes. He's placed you in authority. He's placed you in leadership, men and women that way. Maybe you have a responsibility, ladies. You, you supervise a team. And men, maybe you supervise a team or a group of people. Are you just? Do you fear the Lord more than you fear man? See, that's a big deal today. People are so worried about appeasing men that they're willing to not do the right thing because they, they want to be liked. They, they want to be celebrated. But often that causes them to step out of the will of God. These are not popular things I'm sharing and teaching with you today, but I assure you that this is God's heart. This is his word. It's holy, and it's always for our best. He never sets us up for failure. David recognized that. He says, and he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises. So he's saying he's going to be like light and not darkness because the darkness can't, what, comprehend the light, right? A morning without clouds. He's saying it won't be gray. It won't be gray that way. Like the tender grass springing out of the earth. Can't you just see that? How the, you know, the grass comes out of the earth and it springs forth and it's vibrant and healthy. And what did Jesus say? He says, in the grass. And he says, and it's what? It's cut down and it's thrown in the furnace. How much more? Humanity. His children. How he loves us. I can't wait till we're standing face to face with him and we really understand the depth of his love and how, I can only speak for my heart, but how I, I put a defense up or I put a wall up or something that I never allowed myself to, to truly experience that because of insecurity or, or because fill in the blank, friends. Somebody here, somebody, we all have things. And Jesus desires we lay that down and we be seen as we were created to be seen. Sons and daughters of the living God, precious and beautiful in his sight. By clear shining after rain. Have you ever seen how it glistens after rain? Some you know, you can remember. I remember growing up in Rochester on Mulberry Street. I can remember the house had a porch and mom would open the door right after a rain. And the smell would come in. She had a screen door. We'd be sitting in the kitchen. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And it brings that smell. We didn't have air conditioning back then. You just, you had the air come in and it smelled fresh. And you'd look out and that sun was beaming after the, the, the storm that had just passed by. And it was like all things, it's just like he says, all things are made new. It's like that storm had gone by. That's all past. And what, and what is now is bright and new. And you couldn't wait to get outside as a kid, put on your shoes. You wanted to get out. You know, maybe some of you young girls like to go out and you, you jumped in the puddles and everything like that. Or maybe some of the guys you did that too, you know, made bud pies or whatever you did. But I, that's what I picture when I read this, but by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. You know, I think David was being honest and humble. He's recognizing the fact that in his house, in his life, there were times where he missed it. He hadn't arrived. None of us here have. There's sin in our lives. We're forgiven sinners. We're not perfect. But he recognized and remembered the covenant, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. If you're taking notes, you want to write in the margin there. He's referring back to the fact that Messiah... 
through the Davidic covenant would come through the line of David. And he's, he's recounting that. He's, what he's doing is he's, he's not dwelling on the past and his failures, but he's looking to the hope and the promises of God. Boy, that's a good lesson for us, isn't it? That is a great lesson for us. Stop focusing on the past and the things that we've done that we've been forgiven from and repented from and focus on the, the things that Christ are doing, is doing right now in our lives today because the best in Christ is yet to come. And that produces hope. That's what he's talking about, that hope there. Ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? <laughs> David's, David's thinking correctly. But the sons of rebellion, he's going to contrast this, right? So sort of the end of sort of the righteousness and obedience that you live that way. And now he's going to go to the end of what's going to happen to the unrighteous and the disobedient. He's going to compare, compare and contrast them just in these last remaining verses in this section. But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands, but the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> These are the names of the mighty men. So in this section, he's going to go through, and now as he's recounting just, you know, who would David have been without his mighty men, right? And who were these guys? Do you remember back to 1 Samuel chapter 22 and these guys? You know, these were the guys that, you know, if I could say the misfits. I mean, these were the guys that everybody, you know, the, the guys that, you know, hadn't, you know, managed their house well, their finances, the whole thing. You know, they, they were just a mess, you know, and, and they come alongside David. And they begin to see a man after God's own heart. And they start to follow this man and the journey that they go on with this man for how many years? 30 plus, maybe even 40 years, some suggest. But you just think about this. Where would David been without these men? And where would these men have been without David, right? Ultimately, because David pointed them to God. And I just think about all of you here tonight. No idea the way you've touched other people's lives. And maybe that's good that you don't know. Maybe it's good I don't always know that. Because it protects us from pride, doesn't it? Oh, we're doing a good job, aren't we? Oh, boy. You know, we're more than happy to do that. No, no, we have no idea the way that we've touched and affected everyone's lives. You all are living epistles to be known and read by men and women. These are the names of the mighty men. It's going to be grouped just so you know as we go through these. You're going to see three groups. He sort of groups each one in threes. He starts with his elite of elite, and then he goes to like sort of the elite, and then he goes to the what we might say the regular grouping. But they're all grouped in threes if you see how he's, uh, David has recorded there. This was recorded uh, by the Holy Spirit. These are the names of the mighty men who David had. Joseph Beshabeth. I'm going to get these names wrong. It's okay. The Tachamite. Chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Ezanite. Again, free information there for you. Because he had killed 800 men at one time. I mean, just think about that. What, what is that trying to tell us here? This was against the Philistines, if you remember. That's supernatural. That's supernatural. One man going out against 800 men, that's supernatural. And, and coming back, God had given the victory there. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. Again, I, who names their kid Dodo? Hey, Dodo. The Ohite, one of three mighty men with David, 
when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for the battle, and the men of Israel retreated, right? So we're, we're now introduced to this man. He rose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. Now, that, that's my kind of guy. I mean, he, he literally, you know, you know why that happened, because he's out there serving the Lord. He's fighting in the battle, and he literally doesn't stop until God says stop. There is no quit. There is no failure. He's not concerned about death. I like this guy. What happens, though, is his hand gets so cramped because he's holding on to that sword so tight that by the end of the, the battle, he, he can't. Have you ever done that? You're, you're, you're hammering something. I know I've been, you know, construction, building something or doing something, and I'm intensely doing it for hours and hours and hours to the point of when I, when I go to put it down, my hand afterwards is sort of cramped up. Maybe you've experienced that some of yourselves, or maybe you haven't. Praise God if you haven't. I don't know. But I've experienced that. Or you do something that you don't normally do with your muscles. You work muscles you didn't even know. I like to say you didn't even know you had. You know what I mean? You do something you haven't done in a while, and you do it. And afterwards, oh, you know, it doesn't happen then. But, you know, later on that night after dinner, supper, you boy, why am I all achy? I don't know what's going on. Oh, that's right. Yesterday I, and fill in the blank. Well, here's this man. I mean, he literally had been fighting this battle. He held this sword so long that his, his hand almost become paralyzed, so to speak, paralyzed, just muscle-weak, cramping around that, right? What a great leader. I like that. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. You know, and I, I think about in the New Testament, just so you don't all run out and buy swords and, you know, go out and start, you know, he's not calling us to do that. In the New Testament, what's he say we're to do in Ephesians 6, 13? We're to do what? We're to stand, right? We have our weapon. Our sword is what? The word of God, the sword of the spirit. We've been given the helmet of salvation, right? It's what protects and renews our mind, the word of God, right? Our defensive weapon, we have a shield, but it's a shield of faith, right? We don't need to go through all the weaponry. I encourage you to read Ephesians, or if you weren't with us, please go online and, uh, you know, study it, you know, on the church app or on the website. But what he's pointing out here is God had given him this directive to, to stay in the battle so long that his hand got cramped. What it would be like for us if we stand in the battle, and as New Testament believers, New Covenant believers, we prayed without ceasing, as Paul had suggested, because prayer is our mighty weapon. What it would be if we are in our word multiple times a day, not just because, you know, we read it for 15, 20 minutes to start our day, but literally going back into the word and just spending time with Jesus, coming away changed. So much so that, you know, our hands are cramped, not from holding a sword, but from holding your Bibles. Your knees, you know, I think of James, right? You think of uh, James in scripture, you know, he became known as camel knees. Why? Because literally his knees would swell because he spent so much time in prayer on his knees that when he would go to get up, his knees would almost buckle. And so they would come up and they would support him on either side and they would help him as he would make his way along because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer. We'll spend hours doing something we love, won't we? Right? Some of you, you know, you have your hobbies, you have your things, and there's nothing wrong with that. But how much time do we spend in the Word of God a day? You know, sometimes if we put in 30 minutes to an hour, whoa, it's a good day, a check. It's a good day. 
Have you ever got to the point where your eyes are so blurry because you've been reading so long? Your neck starts to hurt because you're so just encapsulated in what God is saying to you that you're literally, your whole posture has changed. I can hear it now, the chiropractors. Don't tell them that. Yes, I understand you're not supposed to sit that way. But, you know, you're just pouring over the word of God. You get headaches because literally your posture is wrong and you're literally hanging on the next word that the Lord's going to give you. If you've never experienced that, you don't know what you're missing. I had the privilege to be in the Word sometimes four hours, five hours. You just, you come away different. You come away changed. I really encourage that. Have this, you know, mental image of this hand around the sword, but your hand around the Word of God, holding on ever so tight, so dear. The Lord brought out a great victory that day, and the people were turned after him only to plunder. And after him with Shammah, the son of Ag, the Herite, the Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field to defend it. I like this guy. He wasn't worried about the odds. And he killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory because he stood in the gap. He wasn't considered about, he wasn't worried about being alone. He wasn't worried about standing alone with Jesus. You and Jesus are a multitude. Please remember that whatever should become us in these last days, whether it be imprisonment or I don't care what it is, you and Jesus are a multitude. You are never alone. Even in solitary confinement, you and Jesus are a multitude. Never, ever forget that. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Then three of the 30 chief men went down to harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. That's near Engedi. You might uh, be thinking of 1 Samuel 22 there. The troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephim. Again, right around 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 4 and 5. David was in the stronghold, in the garrison of the Philistines, and it was in Bethlehem. You know, it had to be interesting for David as he was fleeing, as he was staying there, um, because he grew up there. He grew up in that area. And we'll read uh, about a little bit how he craved the water. You remember that? And his three guys go out to get the water from him, but he can't drink it because he realized how they had risked their lives for that water. But he'd grown up there. Can you imagine David thinking back to when he was 10, 11 years old? caring for his dad's sheep. You ever do that? You ever think back to when you were young, 10, 12, 15 years old, how different you think things were? Notice the way I said that. The Proverbs are very clear on that. But we, we sort of remember things a certain way. And David's kind of looking back and thinking through these things. And David said with longing, oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem. He says, you know, I could taste it. You know, I, I remember what that water tastes like. I grew up on that water, which is by the gate. And just so you don't think this is silly, the water does matter, you know. I can, I can think of my, my, uh, my mother-in-law. You know, she would make gravy every Sunday, um, 
metanaro or a sauce, okay, gravy, right? She would make it every Sunday. You guys might know it as, like, red sauce, but it's marana, right? Or a bolognese with, like, a meat sauce, a carne sauce, right? So we'd have it every Sunday. We'd get together, and, you know, that's what Italian people do and you know, other people do. We'd get together, right? And we'd eat. And the family, when she would make it, if they would travel in, they loved her sauce. They loved their gravy. They were like, this is amazing. What do you do? How do you make this? So she would travel down to Florida to see other parts of the family because they lived in Florida. And they would always say, oh, you know, Aunt Tess, can you make, can you make your, your gravy, your sauce? And she would, sure, I'll make it. So she starts making it. And she, she adds the water. She does a little thing. She tastes it at the end, hours, hours, hours later. And some of you mothers and grandmothers know what I'm talking about here. Hours and hours later. And she's like, what's this? They're eating it. Oh, this is so good. She's like, oh. I wouldn't touch that. I wouldn't get, don't, don't give the dog this. Don't give the dog. You know what I mean? It was, she's like, and there, but they loved it. And she's sitting there and she goes, it's the water. It's the water. So she starts tasting the water and she's the Florida water. It's not the same. So you know what she did after that? She would come down there. She'd pack jugs of water from the Bronx and put the water from the Bronx in the thing. And then she'd bring them down there and she'd make it. They couldn't tell us. They didn't, you know, they didn't know the difference. She knew. She said, now this is good water, you know. So I'm telling you, water matters here. Water matters. I understand David's heart here. My mother-in-law would understand David's heart. So he brought, you know, we're back here in verse 16. So the three mighty men uh, broke through the camp of the Philistines. They drew water from the well of Bethlehem. And uh, that was by the gate. And he took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink. And he poured it out to the Lord, right? You know, he wasn't going to do that because uh, he knew that was the only worthy thing to do, to make it as a sacrifice unto God that way. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he wouldn't drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. What, what a great leader. You know, you look at David's heart. He recognized it. I can imagine he was craving that water, you know, like I crave the gravy. You know, I, he's wanting it. He can taste it. And then he gets it, and he, at that moment, he's convicted by God, and he's going, no. no. These three men risked their lives to get this for me. It could have hurt. No, what kind of leader would I be? No. And he offers it to the Lord as a sacrifice. And what that, how does that speak to those men right there? They recognize that David loves them, that David loves them. And a good leader loves those that he's called to lead, right? That's, that's what he leads, feeds, he protects. That's what he does. Verse 18, now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of another three. So we're getting another three here. This is our second uh, group. He lifted his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of the three? I think this is interesting because in verse 18 and 19, I mean, we, there's so much we read about in first and second, well, second Samuel in particular, about Abishai and all the things. And yet here it's, Sort of one verse, one verse about Abishai like that. Um, was he not the most honored of the three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Now, you might wonder why. Why didn't Abishai? Because he's Joab's brother. Because there were times that Abishai was quick. You remember when he was with David? And at one point he had a spear. And he turned around and he says, David. I'll just take it and I'll just stab it right through him right now. Saul, remember Saul said, I'll just do it right now. And, and, and David said, how dare you touch God's anointed? We would never touch God's anointed that way. So there were things that I think Abishai did that David kind of was, mm, you're a little bit of a cowboy, Abishai. You're a little, ra well, 
all three of the kids, right? All, all three of Zariah's kids were a little bit of a cowboy. You know, Abishai is just one of them. Joab, clearly we've seen that as an example as well. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaiah was the son of Jediah, or Jediah, the son of valiant men from Kabazil, who had done many deeds. And he had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. Again, just free information. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of the pit on a snowy day, just in case you ever wondered, and you see him in heaven. You're the snow, you know, lion guy. And he killed an Egyptian, a spect, you know, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jodiah, did, and they won name among the three mighty men. He was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three, and David appointed him over his guard. So he was not of the elite of the elite, but he was certainly elite, okay? Did you notice who was missing in that list? I kind of mentioned him already. Abishai's brother, Joab. I wonder why. Do you think that it was because maybe he murdered? Well, David did that, right? Uriah the Hittite. But David was repentant, wasn't he? Do you remember when Joab murdered Abner? Do you remember when Joab turned around and murdered Absalom? I happen to believe that's why God, the Holy Spirit, had left him out of this account because of those things. He was never a repentant man. He was a man that, while certainly there was some good qualities and loyalty to David, he was not a repentant man, and he had been given much choice to do that. And so for whatever reason, God has chosen to leave him out in this account of one of those three that were of the elite elite because he was, a, he was a general for, for, uh, for David that way. Amasa took over for a time, if you remember, but then what did Joab do? Murdered Amasa, remember? He went down like he pretended like his sword was coming and falling. He went down like he was picking up his sword. As he stood up, he thrusted it into Amasa's belly there. Ashiel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Elhan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shema, the Herodite of Elka, the Herodite. Helez, the Paleite. Ira, the son of Ikish, the Tekite. Abiezer, the Anathite. Mubani, <laughs> the Hushalite. Zalman, the... I, I should spare you, but I'm going to keep going. So we could say every line, every verse, every jot and tittle. Uh, all right, Mariah, the Natharvite, Halib, the son of Benah, the Ait, Atiah, the son of Reviah, the Gibeah of the children of Benjamin, Benaiah, a Patharonite, Hadai, Hadai, from the brooks of Gash, Abi Bahan, the Abrahite, Asmavith, the Baramite, Aliba, the Shalbanite, of the sons of Jishan, Jonathan, Shema, the Harite, Ahim, the son of Shahar, the Harite, wow, Eliphalet, the son of Ahashabai, the son of Makahitite, <laughs> Elam, the son of Ahithophel, ah, oh, we recognize that, right, Ahithophel, right? He was the great, uh, he, sorry, he was the grandfather of who? You remember? Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11.3, Bathsheba. 
We recognize him. He, do you remember, he was a trusted counselor, but then he went against David because he never, and I'm sure David would have repented or asked for forgiveness, he never forgave because what David had done to Bathsheba as a grandfather, he certainly, you know, he, he never forgave David, yet he was so faithful to Saul and so many others and well-respected, but it, it basically that bitterness consumed him. Hezrai the Carmelite, Parai the Arabite, Egal the son of Nathan and Zobah, Banai the Gadite, Zalik the Ammonite, Naharai the Birath, armor-bearer of Joab the son of Zariah, Ira, and Ithite, Garib the Hethrite, and Uriah, look at that, Uriah's in there, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Interesting, Uriah's in there. Is a, is a memorial, is a remembrance, because he was faithful, wasn't he? Now, chapter 24 here, we'll probably close this here tonight. Um, we'll go through and we'll finish the book, and then we'll begin First Kings next week, if the Lord should tarry. But chapter 24, again, one of those, another one of those moments, you know, it, there's a parallel passage in First Chronicles chapter 21. It parallels this portion of chapter 24. We will go back and forth because there's some additional information in chapter 24 of, uh, of, of Chronicles, or 21 I meant to say, in Chronicles that we don't all get here. But um, clearly we go through and we see another moment of David. Um, I mean, just at the end here, kind of like, come on, David. Um, but we're going to find out he's going to call it a thing. Joab's actually going to bring it to his attention. And what that thing is, is pride. Pride. Pride is what's going to be one of the last things that uh, God's going to continue to make sure he works out of David that way. He desires to work out of all of us that way. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them, say, go number Israel and Judah. If you read that the first time, and that's the only account you read, and you didn't read the parallel account of 1 Chronicles 21, who does it sound like basically sets this whole thing up? And in some of your translations, by the way, they might even capitalized the H in he, which I believe is incorrect. Because if you look in the manuscripts, you would know that's incorrect. But if you look at this, who do you think he's trying to say? And again, the anger of who? The Lord. In this chapter, chapter 24, verse 1, it makes it sound like the Lord is actually the author of this. However, as I mentioned, just hold your finger here. Please turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Go past Kings, and you'll get to Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. I just entreat you to turn, to please, to verse 1, and we'll see the true author of this here. Now Satan, do you see that? Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So scripture contradicting itself, what's going on here? How do we reconcile this? All I can tell you here in my understanding, especially in the way the Hebrew is written, is that what this is saying, and it's always speaking about choice, is that God allowed David to sin. God did not withhold David from sinning. He gave the choice. Satan spurred David through pride, because certainly Satan is the author of all pride, we understand that, to go to David and said, David, look at what you've done. Take a military census and draw some attention to your, excuse me, attention to yourself, David. Well done, David, right? David's having this moment. Satan's put this thought in his head. And David has a, a choice here, just like every single one of us here tonight, because every one of us gets that same spiritual attack from the enemy. He puts those thoughts in our hearts, in our heads. 
He makes them sound very good. We buy into it. He then can, what, condemns us for it. We get hit on both ends. And it's the same old attack that Satan's been doing since the dawn of time. He does this to David. David has a choice. Well, let's read what he does here. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, certainly because of idolatry. And he moved, that should be a lowercase h, because it's Satan who moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. And David says, you know what? That's a good idea. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people that I may know the number of the people. The, the idea of Beersheba to Dan or Dan to Beersheba is basically go through the north to the south is what he's saying. This is going to be a military census. Now, there's a main plot in chapter 24. Then there's going to be a subplot, okay? Just please, I'll try to, you know, help bring this out, or illuminate this and bring this to light. But there's multiple plots going in here, right? There's a, a plot with David as a subplot, but there's a bigger plot going on also with God and Israel and judgment and choice that we all have free will. And that's not a new covenant, New Testament teaching. That's the word of God, okay? That's God's establishment. So, and Joab said to the king, now may the Lord... Your God add to the people a hundred times more than they are, and may the eyes of the Lord the king see it. But why does the Lord the king desire this thing? I, I like this. Joab, he has his moments. He stands up and he says, because he knows exactly what he's doing. He, Joab hears this from David and he's, you know, David, what? So now you want to go, you know, he's not even able to go into battle anymore. Remember that ordinance has been passed. David, what are you concerning yourself with the number of men in the military and what's going on here? We're not at war rate at this moment. We've just come back into Jerusalem. Um, you've been given some of the designs for the temple that you're going to hand off to your son, Solomon, to build. What are you, where's this coming from, David? That's, that's sort of what Joab's saying. He's, what is he trying to do? He's trying to protect him. He's trying to, Joab is trying to protect David. Why? Because at this moment, David is filled with pride. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains. We read that too. So it wasn't just Joab. We also see even his captains, his guys that he trusted, they had come to him and go, David, what are you doing? This isn't from the Lord, David. But David had set his mind. We all have to be careful of that. You know, we can be entrusted with authority, whether it's at our jobs, our homes, and different things, and we can dig in because we believe we're doing the right things, but we have to be careful to listen to the counsel of those men that are around us because God raises those men and women around us to give us good counsel. Husbands, I think this is a great example of why God has given us wonderful helpmates and to listen to those helpmates when they want to show things to us that we may not see. It's not disrespectful when they do it as long, you know, as long as they're not yelling at you or throwing you a pan at you or anything. As long as it's respectful. And that never happens in my house. I just want to be clear. I'm giving examples. My poor wife's like, what? Why did you say a pan? They're going to think I hit you. No, my wife does not hit. I'm using an example, right? You, you don't understand. I get listeners. People are going to call me on Monday. You know, pastor, do we need to... Uh, send reinforcements? No, no, no. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. I'm good. Pray for my poor wife that has to deal with me. <laughs> so you're like, I do. We do. No. Um, 
Thank you. Nevertheless, the king would prevail against Joab, uh, against the captains over the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. So now he's causing them to sin. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Aror on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the raven of Gad, a ravine, excuse me, of Gad, and toward Jazir. That's basically the modern Jordan. That's modern, what we would know as the Jordan there. That's what it's speaking to. What David was doing as part of the pride and the guilt of the sin, just, just so I want to make sure you guys got the main plot and the subplot. The main plot is David is doing something out of character and not representing the Lord's command. He's doing something on his own without God's leading or direction. That's the main sin that we see here. That's the main plot, being out of the will of God, not, not listening to the Lord, not being directed by God. The subplot now is David is worshiping the works of God instead of the God of the works, okay? That can happen to every one of us. We can get so caught up in the way God is moving and manifesting his power that we start saying, wow, and we're worshiping and we're worshiping and it's really lathering it up and we're doing those things because we're seeing God move and work and do all these things. And yet God says to us, hey, Matt, when's the last time you sat down with me and spent time with me? Well, Lord, what about the land? Lord, what about the... No, 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 Matt, we pre- I appreciate all that. Matt, how are you doing? How are you doing? I just want to talk to you. I love you. And I know he desires to have that in all of our lives and relationships and our hearts. That's the subplot of what's going on, is that David, through the military at this point, as we're going to learn, he's got 1.3 million men at this point. There's going to be roughly a church of Israel, if you count it that way. You know how I'm referring to that, of 6 million by this point, if you have 1.3 million men, roughly, that's not counting women or children. You have roughly 6 million, best I can tell by scholars. You remember when they came out of Egypt and they were making their way in, they had what? 2 million. So we've seen God grow them 3x, threefold. And what is David doing? He's looking at this and marveling in the fact of it, and he's worshiping the works of God instead of the God of the works. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tahitim Hadashai. They came to Dan, Jeon, and around Sidon, right? And you can, you know, continue to read. And if you want, Deuteronomy 7, 7, gets more area where he's talking about. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went out to the south of Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had uh, gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Almost 10 months they were gone, these men, conducting this military survey. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I know some of you tonight are probably reading this and going, God, why did you allow this? If somebody here's got to be thinking that, why did you allow this? If God allows... The, death, you know, the devil to test my faith, all I can say to you is it doesn't make God responsible for my sin. Do you understand that? If God allows the devil to test my faith, it doesn't make God responsible for my sin. That's exactly all I can say about David here as I'm reading this. That's all I'm thinking. 
Well, he comes to this area of Beersheba, and when they had gone through the land, again, we see this nine months and 20 days. Then Joab gave some of the number to the people, to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So you get 1.3 million men, as I was mentioning earlier. And if you just look at women and children, boys that would have been younger, that wouldn't have been able to be counted in this number, you, you, you now have a, a church of Israel, if I can say it that way, of around 6 million. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. See, he had a relationship with God. So, you know, in this moment, he comes back. He's like, wow, look at that. 1.3 million, 6 million. Wow. Huh? How about it? And he's sitting there and all of a sudden he got the check. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The check in the spirit. You ever had that? You get the check in the spirit. You, you think it's okay, even though everybody around you has told you, don't do this. God's putting up warning signs. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Stop but you're sure you're right. And you just blow by him. You blow by him. You blow by him. And all of a sudden you get to the point where you think you're going to get to your destination and you get that check in the spirit. And God says, did I tell you to do that? And it's almost like the scales have fallen from your eyes and you go, what have I done? What have I done? And I think that's the moment David's having here. This is a man that Clearly had a heart after God. He got caught up in his own pride as part of this subplot. And he's sitting there and he's going, what did I do? Why did I listen to Satan? Why did I listen to the lies? He's a liar. As Jesus said, he's a liar from the beginning. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And there's the subplot. It's revealed, right? Now, I will, let me just point out one other thing, just because I know you read your Bible, praise God, the Holy Spirit, your teacher. When you read Chronicles, right, right around uh, 21, verse 5, you're going to see different numbers. You're going to see different numbers than 800,000 and Judah with 500,000. Please understand that God's word is inspired. The men that are the copyists, we just went to the Bible Museum. The school got to go to the Bible Museum in D.C. on um, just, you know, recently here. And it was a beautiful class trip. They had, you know, 50 or whatever, 40, 49 of them on a bus, you know, with the kids. The, they all got there. And you get to go in, and you, I love one of the areas of the museum. You know, you go in, and it's just got the Bibles. And you see the Bibles, you know, some from, you know, you can see the, the facsimile copies from the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, 30 B.C. to 30 A.D., and you just see it right before your eyes. No doubt that this is, you know, 2,000-plus years ago. You're looking at a scroll sitting right there before you. You see, you know, 1546 and Bibles from all over. It's a precious time, and you're looking at this, and it's just, you know, but one of the things they do is they, they, they have a rabbi there. And one of the things that they go through and they explain um, is that the copying that was done, they didn't have a copying press <laughs> like, you know, Gutenberg and things that had come later on during sort of Reformation time uh, periods, you know, 1500s and what have you. They didn't have that. So what would happen is that the, the, the rabbi or the scribe would write each particular and, and I'm going right to left because that's how the Hebrews done. They would turn around and they would write these out and they would number each line and the count the amount of letters they had at the end and they would write a number and that would use their check and they would go down each one to make sure it added up. If they made a mistake, 
right? They would have to turn around and throw that piece of parchment out and they would start all over again. But every once in a while, we'll see something where there's a number that's a typo. So whether it's 800,000, 875, you know, how the scribe has co copied it over, it does no way, you know, changes the authority or the inspiration of the word of God. The man that was copy it, copying it wasn't inspired to, you know, he's a man, right? He's like you and I, he's a man, he makes mistakes. Oops, that's a three, it should have been a two, okay? Praise God, it's kept that way. That tells us that nobody went back and went, oops, we got to fix this and tried to cover it up and corroborate it, right? They said, you know, we don't know. We know that the number's here. We know that the number's here. We have to leave it that way because it is God's word, and we don't know which number it is because of the manuscript at this point, so we're going to leave both. And I say praise the Lord for that because that's how much they revered the word of God, that they were afraid to alter a single jot or tittle. But we must recognize these are men that were copying and once in a while, you may get a number. But I just bring that up because if you go to Chronicles, I don't want you to, or somebody tries to come in and says, you know, the Bible's not trustworthy because see, in Chronicles, they use it. you're able to come back and go, hang on, do you understand what's involved in this? And that if somebody would cop a number, it's very easy to accidentally go, oh, it's a two instead of a three or something like that, especially in the Hebrew. It's very, very easy because when you're counting numbers, guess what? If I count like if I say to you, three, four, five, right? That represents three characters. If I put four, five, six, what's that still represent? Three characters. Do you see why it's tricky when it's numbers? Because you could, at the end of your copying row, you could still end up with the right number of characters, even though you accidentally may have put a three instead of a two. So they wouldn't have caught, the scribe wouldn't have caught that at the end of their row. Do you, do you understand with me now what I'm saying? Because uh, some of you are looking like, I don't get it. I think now you get it. The character alignment stays the same, although they may have transcribed the number. That, that's all. Uh, I just want you to understand that. Verse uh, 10, right? And David's heart uh, condemned him after he had, a number, had numbered the people so that David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Again, subplot uh, revealed there. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer. Notice that he comes to his prophet. He doesn't come directly to David, although he heard God's, or David, uh, God heard David's repentant heart and certainly forgives him. But friends, there are still consequences to sin. And I think that's something that we need to talk about. There are still consequences to sin. We can be forgiven, but there are consequences to sin. Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, here it is. Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Number one. Number two, or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or number three, or shall there be three days of plague in your land? Now consider and what answer I should and consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me back to God. Two of these directly impact David, right? Or pardon me, two of these do not directly impact David, right? Because David's got more than enough money as king; he can protect himself from famine. He's got more than enough money that he can hide soldiers and hide out so that if people come to try to capture him and take him, he can protect himself and his family and his household. But all of Israel would be impacted by all three of these. Once again, we're going to see David's heart. 
And we're going to see the heart of a true leader. He's not all about protecting himself. As a matter of fact, it's not about him, right? It's always about those he's called to serve. And so in this example here, we're going to see David is going to choose the only option that allowed the correction to be brought to his own household. Because the other two, he would have been able to spare himself or someone in his household could have spared him. He recognizes judgment and correction is from the Lord. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects or chastens. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let, us, please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. He says, please let us. He's talking about David and his household. Please understand that. He, he drew himself into it at that point and said, I will be part of this, us. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. He says, I don't want to make that choice. Man's wisdom will not serve me well. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel. God honored that because basically he was giving the answer to David, the only one that would allow David and everybody else in Israel to be part of this would have been the plague because it would fall upon everyone that way. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time from Dan to Beersheba, the north to south, 70,000 men of the people died. I mean, this is heartbreaking, right? All this because of pride. The wake of sin, it, it creates so much destruction. Pride destroys. I just think 70,000 men had to die because of just one man's pride. That's how it destroys. It affects everyone. Sin spreads. Sin is more contagious than any virus or bacteria. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction, said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And just think about all that's happened. If the Lord hadn't restrained, how many more would have died? But God said, no, his mercies were there. It said, no, no more. Don't, don't destroy anymore. Even, even while technically what? They all deserved it. They all deserved it. And we all deserve it. We all deserve death. The wages of sin is death. Right? I know I'm filthy rags. The Bible tells me that. Romans 1 through 3 pretty, makes that pretty obvious. If it was, apart from Jesus Christ, who am I? I don't have an identity apart from Jesus Christ. I'm blood-bought. And so are all of you if you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior. You are precious as in sight. You are a jewel. But the thing I think about is, again, the, the, I go back to how contagious sin is. Sin is more contagious than any bacteria and any, any virus, as I've said earlier. And what we're sort of just in light of the recent pandemic we had a year or so ago or some parts still going through, some part of the world is still dealing with the virus that way, COVID. And I thought, how... How wonderful it would be if every human being had the same awareness of sin as they do of COVID or any other disease or virus for that matter. You want a revival? We'd have a revival because people would be thinking about, well, Lord, I'm offending you. I'm sinning against you. What have I done again? You know, but most people in an average day, they're not examining their own hearts as scripture teaches us to do. They're more interested in what? 
preserving their flesh. That which is going to fall away. Do you, do you see why Jesus says to actually lose your life is to gain it and to gain your life is to lose it? Because he was trying to help them understand this is temporal. All this energy, I mean, all the beauty products, all the things that we see, you know, do this, do that, you'll live an extra five years, the fountain of you. I mean, all these things about extending our lives for what? It, the goal is not to preserve life here. The goal is to glorify and worship God. And while we're entrusted with time here, to do as much as we can for the kingdom of God and for the people around us, pardon me, the people around us, so that they can know Jesus too and not be ensnared with the same trap we were where we valued our own flesh over our spirit. And that's why John 3 said we had to be born again because we weren't born again of the flesh or the physical. We were born again in the spirit. And that's what he's talking about here. And so we find, and the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor at Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he had saw the angel who was striking the people and said, surely I have sinned. Do you see that? He actually says, David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. This was evident to David. He was able to see this somehow supernaturally. Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. Again, beautiful. Very, very beautiful here because we see perfectly what it looks like. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna. Now, you know, a threshing floor would have been up in a high, a high elevation because you need the wind to blow to separate the wheat and chaff. So it would have been up in a higher elevation, a mountainous area. You do know where a mount, well, you do know where Aruna is, right? It's very familiar to all of you. Mount Moriah. That's right. Somebody said the Temple Mount. Mount Moriah in that area, right? And what happened in Mount Moriah? Just go back in your, in your minds here for a minute. Um, go back to Genesis, what is it, 22-2. Abraham brought Isaac to sacrifice him, sacrifice him on Mount Moriah that way. Um, Jesus in our New Testament, he was put on the cross and crucified. Where? Right in the vicinity of Mount Moriah, the sacrifice. Where did David meet the angel of the Lord? As we just read, Mount Moriah. The temple mount that Solomon would build the temple. Where did he build that? Mount Moriah. So God is bringing this all together for us, this piece of land. And it's always been pointing to Jesus, the sacrifice, because we're going to see that David's going to make a sacrifice on an altar there that one day would be fulfilled and completed perfectly by Jesus Christ. It would no longer be a covering for sin, but it would be a complete removal of sin. Do you see how cool this is? I mean, God is so good. So David, according to the word of God, went up to the Lord, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, why is my Lord, the king, come to his servants? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from my people. Now Aruna said to David, let my Lord, the king, take an offer up for whatever seems good to him. Look here, 
are oxen for a burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes and oxen of, for wood. So clearly Arun understands that there's going to be a sacrifice, but part of it's going to be an atonement or a blood sacrifice, but we're also going to see the sacrifice contains something else, a peace offering. A peace offering was not for atonement of sin. A peace offering for was for what? It blows me away. It's always been before us. It's been before Israel, before the Jews. Fellowship. That's why Jesus Christ and the shed blood on the cross. Because when we were not right, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Because he restored relationship for you and I with God the Father, that we could now enter into the Holy of Holies which was previously forbidden. We could have relationship. And yes, the burnt offering was there for the atonement of sin. But it wasn't just the atoning of the sin. It was also the providing of relationship. That was what God was after. You and I. To think we were the prize. Meanwhile, he's the prize. Blows me away every time I read this. I get wrecked. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it for you at a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my. Sorry. <clears throat> no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price because it's got to cost something, doesn't it? The sacrifice has to cost something. It cost God the Father something, his only begotten son, and he was well pleased. Jesus' life, his blood. True sacrifice always costs something. David knew that. He was making that clear to Aruna. Aruna. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God for that which costs me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the auction, 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord. So he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Do you see that? There it is. Burnt offerings for sin atonement, peace for fellowship. You can go back to Numbers. Look at what the offerings are for. Leviticus, I meant to say. Look what the offerings are for. So the Lord heeded the prayers of the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. How do we know we received it? Because in, uh, because in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 26, we know that God accepts the sacrifice because we find and we read that the sacrifice was consumed by fire completely. And that tells us that God accepted that sacrifice, that the atonement was received and given, and that the peace offering was accepted and fellowship was given. And that will take us to the first book of Kings. That will begin, if the Lord should tarry, next week. First and second Kings originally was one book. There's no human author given in first and second Kings. Again, some speculate Jeremiah the prophet wrote first and second Kings. Um, but just so you know, it narrates about 500 years, okay? Um, where it goes through and it looks at the you might say the rise and the fall of the kingdoms, okay? We move from the judges to the kings and to the prophets, and First and Second Kings goes to that 500 years of the rise and fall of the kings. So hopefully uh, you'll join me next Wednesday as we'll be together and we'll begin First Kings.
We now have it as two separate books in our, our Bibles, but it again was one. Will you please stand and pray with me? Hopefully you're blessed by that study through Samuel. I encourage you, if you missed any part of it, go back up in the church app or download it from the app store or whatever they call those things. Download it from that or you can get it on the website. And again, go back and study it. There's so much, so pivotal, pitiful, excuse me, I meant to say, First Samuel, because you're, you're taking and you're transitioning from judges, right, to prophets. And that's incredibly important because when you overlay the kings as we go through this, and I encourage you to come out and study this, it's, it's powerful. When we look at kings, we can't just study kings without also looking at the prophets, both the major and the minor prophets, because the prophets have become God's mouthpiece that he speaks to the people. After David, we'll see Solomon, right? But God doesn't speak as direct as he used to through kings like he does with David. So he'll be using the prophets sort of be the mouthpiece. And Kings gives us the narration of what's going on in Israel, their hearts, the people's hearts. And then the prophets come in as God is saying, you know, I love you, do this. And so we must study them sort of all together as we go through it. So it will take us some time to get through First and Second Kings, but it's an amazing study. We'll be bringing up some graphics so you, those that are visual will be able to visual and we'll overlay the prophets and the timelines and everything. But I think it's one of the most powerful uh, studies. When I went through First and Second Kings and Chronicles the first time, it was like the Lord illuminated the light bulb, and I then began to understand how the whole Bible connects. That was what it was for me so many years ago. It was the study of Kings and Chronicles where I began to then understand how it all is pearls that were interweaven by God supernaturally. And I pray that's the same blessing for you all. Father, I just thank you for your holy word. I thank you for your time here tonight, Lord, with us as you've been in our presence and through your Holy Spirit, you've spoken to your people, Lord. Thank you for preserving Samuel for us, Lord, the word of God, that we can study these things, Lord, as we know and we just read tonight in 1 Corinthians 10, these things are an example for us, Lord. You did not want us to be unaware so that we would not repeat the same mistakes, Lord. But I, I fret, Lord, 3,000 years later, here we are, God. And we do see these things happening in our land, Lord. Worship of idols, uh, pride. We even just had, Lord, this month a parade that people are walking around calling it a pride parade, Lord. God, I pray for all those that are, Lord, so caught up in that lifestyle and cult, Lord. I, I just pray, Jesus Christ, you will set them free. You can free them from that, Lord. God, I pray you will. I know you will, Lord. We pray for the prodigals, Lord Jesus. We lift up the prodigals to you tonight. Lord God, I pray that um, you'll go before us here as we leave and that, Lord, you'll give us travel mercies. You'll open our eyes, Lord, to the, to the sin that's around us, Lord, that we can be better to pray, Lord, and not just take it for granted or look at things, Lord, the way that the world looks at them, but, Lord, that we would truly be holy and set apart. Lord, that you would preserve us as a remnant until you come to rapture us, Lord. We know you're coming and coming very soon. So Jesus, as we sang here this evening, have all of us. Receive all of us, Lord. We are yours and we are madly in love with you, God. We pray and we ask all of this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. God bless you all and I love you.